the response to this tweet is like one of the epitome of the bubble responses. Okay. So here's a response at $58 and it doesn't even have a product yet. Wait till you see where the price goes after they have a product. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good morning. How's your week? Good, man. How about you? Samesies. I haven't, I haven't gotten to use that word in a while. Samesies. This podcast is going to get canceled if you keep using that word. <laughs> I hear you went to a professional basketball game or two this week. I, I guess I'm curious if you found someone next to you to to chat about like a hundred page research papers. I did, but then they moved randomly. <laughs> like, oh, I, this is I, at my seat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually just seen this. One thing you said my way this week is the stock twits uh, top twenty five and. Gosh, you got some holdings up there. Nvidia is yeah. number one. That's where I live, man. You know how you like the uh, Lion King analogy in the bubble about the hyenas chasing nonsense. It, does this just mean you're a hyena that follows the crowd? Uh, no, it means I I create the crowd. You don't. What you don't understand is who's leading the hyenas. Man, I guess that Substack is getting some readership, huh? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, I know, so, but but the other thing that I, you know, when I sent that to you is I was like, I'm I'm sending this to you for posterity because I think a year from now this is going to look very different. I I still stand by that too. What's your I didn't I didn't plan this, but I was kind of looking at my year-to-date uh return so far. What what are you sitting at right now? I don't know exactly right now, but last I looked a little over 20%. So what's so crazy is I'm at 40. The the mm -hmm. deep value guy is at 40. But really, I was at trailing 12 months through mid-year, I was at like 70. And then mm -hmm. that was one of my rebalances came mid-year. And now I've been pretty much flat ever since. So I'm like limping home to the finish here. <laughs> but it's all it's almost by design because the stuff I owned felt like I felt like it got so expensive, you know, deep value expensive, yeah. which means like Price to book of 1.2, maybe, or uh, <laughs> price to earnings of like, you know, 17. Uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, which is uh, not not deep value. But uh, it, it's funny because I could just kind of see like my year to date performance number, whatever it's going to clock into the books. It will be kind of disappointed, but I'm just so excited to get the year over because I feel yeah. like things are expensive. I'm, I'm excited to get this year over too, to be honest. Last I looked, it was like roughly the market. Basically, like similar to the same performance as the market, but the yeah. the path that I took to get there was not the same as the market. I mean, if you so a couple <laughs> things that happened were one is start of the year, Tall was something Tall Education Group was something like seven to ten percent of my portfolio, and it's effectively yeah. not zero. So yeah. like that that happened, <laughs> um, and then the beginning, I think it was Q one of this year, was pretty brutal to much of the portfolio. So it's been more of like a it just got crushed and has, has been comeback, you know, L Cool J style. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Yeah. I'm just like, get it over with. I want my trigger to go off. I want to make a terrible bet against the market and then go on with our lives. Wow. Now we're, now you're excited to take a terrible bet. Yeah. So my, um, 
one of the ones that's been driving me crazy is uh, TDS, Telephone yep. Data Systems. Like it ripped the first half of the year, and now it was it's cranking. Like, it's like falling off a cliff, pretty much. Um, it's so funny when you mentioned Tall, and and a reminder for those who maybe don't listen to the show every time: we don't give investment advice on the show. We do talk about our portfolios sometimes, and we do give research recommendations. Tall, I think this week I was glancing at some other things, which I'll talk about later. Largely, Sark, the anti Kathy Wood <laughs> inverse ETF, <Yep. laughs> but. Uh, it'd be like tall is up eight percent and i'd be like whoa let's let's check this out maybe it's humming now and it'd be like at four dollars and uh <laughs> 17 cents or something which for those who don't know it used to be at 90 bucks so <laughs> it's got a long way to go um it's it yeah it, yeah it's this week uh the chinese government came out and basically said some version of we may allow the education companies to make to operate their businesses like and so then there was like a glimpse of hope and so that's that's basically about it but but the chinese government also came out and and basically also said that she their uh, president may just forever be in their favor and so it's interesting over there they're like they're paving the way for him to be a very long-standing yeah kind of like uh kind of like putin in a little way, like that's what it feels like, is that they're setting it up for something long-standing like that. So we'll see. Anyway, politics. So, we don't talk about that. Didn't he like elect himself into the Chinese version of like the politician Hall of Fame? Yeah, or something. Yeah, <laughs> How great exactly. Is that? Like, <laughs> let me rant on one thing, and then we'll dive into some meat. Right? You heard about Starbucks, right? <laughs> like the coffee chain? Have I heard yeah, of like, Starbucks? Yeah. Have you, no. Did you hear about what they announced this week? Let me no, see if I, I can pull up the tweet. I didn't hear about that. I embarrass myself constantly around Starbucks in particular because um, I don't drink coffee. And so if uh, back in the day, this was back in the day mainly, we'd be in the office and there was a Starbucks downstairs in our building. And someone from my team would be like, oh, I'm running to Starbucks. Can I get you something? And I'd be like, yeah, can you grab me a milk? <laughs> you just get a milk? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, what do you want the milk in? Like, do you? And I was like, no, just a, just a carton of milk. And so they could come drop it off and call me a baby. No, I can relate, man. When I was getting to know like our current president, he likes to take people out to lunch and then you always hit Starbucks afterwards. So this is like a you know, 1:30 in the afternoon Starbucks run. And I had to cuz I don't really drink coffee either. I had to come up with like an adult Starbucks cuz I want like the kids milkshake basically. Mm. Simply for business purposes. This is like some people learn how to golf and other people learn how to order Starbucks. So we can get you there, Diggles. We'll uh, find a way to get you an adult order at Starbucks. I like that. Because sometimes for your I career. sometimes I get the steamed milk. Anyway, t- tell me Starbucks, about Starbucks. Starbucks said through blockchain and other innovation, innovative technologies, we're going to explore how to tokenize our rewards program. Meb, Meb Faber, who I like, had a good response here that said corporate crypto has been around since the 80s when uh, American Airlines started their frequent fire program. Like, this drives me crazy because Starbucks is just throwing around buzzwords. Their rewards program has worked and will work just fine. They don't need to tokenize it or put it on a decentralized blockchain because it's never going to be decentralized. They're always going to own that ledger. And so if you own a ledger independently, blockchain is like a fancy way to create entries in a spreadsheet. Like this is completely worthless. Am I missing something here? 
this is just what what uh, organizations are doing. You know, it is all about the uh, the buzzwords. You know what I mean? Is They're it like, like trying to hire uh, better um, computer programmers and data scientists or something? I mean, is this a mar- I, actually? I it, it it actually could be it, that that might be a very wise thing that you just said. Is like in this war for talent, it might just be like both for what you stated around data scientists. But it could also be for even frontline workers of just like, oh, Starbucks is like the blockchain oh, place. Starbucks is happening. Yeah, exactly. Where am I, I going to buy my milk? In Kroger Bitcoin. or Starbucks? Starbucks, <laughs> like that blockchain. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so we got a few pieces of listener mail all around one topic, but I'm going to split it into three topics uh, hey, this week. We had listener mail and you were letting me rant oh, about sorry. Starbucks <laughs> when we could have been talking to the people. <laughs> Like, yeah, but on. it's but it's like it's listener mail kind of all around the fact that you know how let me back up for a moment. Previously, uh, we've talked about some signs of of what happened in 2000 happening today, and yeah. one of those things was big tech being broken up, and the fact that like Amazon and Facebook and all that stuff are you know currently um, kind of on the chopping block. But what I did not expect, and this is what the listener mail was all around, was the splitting up of not those companies, but more. I'll say, quote unquote, more voluntary split ups. They're not really voluntary, but split ups of J&J, Johnson & Johnson, Toshiba, and General Electric all announced that they were going to be splitting up. J&J splitting up into a pharma business and medical device company, which will continue yep. to be called Johnson & Johnson, and then a consumer company. So like Band-Aids and, I don't know, baby, whatever, formula or whatever. Yep. Then uh, Toshiba... So we, we've chatted a little bit about Toshiba when we talked about Japan Inc., right, uh, yes. a bunch of episodes ago. So they're planning to have uh, the infrastructure and energy uh, division in one company, the hard disk drive and power semiconductor businesses, um, another, and then the third will manage the in-flash memory chip company. This is Toshiba got this way because of a number of scandals, accounting scandal, collusion scandal. The reason we talked about it when we discussed Japan Inc. is this is the collusion piece, is that Japanese companies, some Japanese companies that are large like Toshiba had basically set up arrangements where management could not be pushed out. And mm-hmm. what shareholders are saying were you're basically setting yourself personally up as the CEO of this company to be successful, have a long reign, but you're hurting shareholders because you're not forced to do anything that yeah. is like innovative or risky. So they're splitting up into three. And then GE is splitting up into three, aviation, healthcare, and energy. We talked about slow risk, right? And fast risk. GE yeah. is slow risk, like coming to a head at this point. There is a great article um, by Jason Zweig in the Wall Street Journal about this. And thank you, Jonathan, for, for sending that over. Take a read. And then there's a book, Hot Seat, uh, by Jeff Emelt, who, who ran um, GE. If you're interested in GE, I recommend reading it. If you're not interested in GE, do not read it. But it's, um, yeah. it's basically a takeover the last roughly 20 years um, and a little bit further on GE of how they've gotten themselves into some, I don't know, some interesting business situations, like a risky business. So lots of split ups this week. The GE one makes sense to me. And even the Johnson Johnson one, it makes sense. I don't know the Toshiba business uh, that well. I have a GE story, though. One of the first uh, Wall Street vets I met. I was probably like 16, uh, 17. So I didn't really know much about finance at all. And uh, he corners me at a party. We talk and he gives me his whole investment philosophy and everything else. And at that time, his investment philosophy is like, if you don't know what to do, 
GE is better than cash because it was paying a 4.4% dividend and, and GE basically under the Jack Welch era um, was that, you know, they like moved around money. So they never missed a wall street estimate. And I say never, that's not true, but they, they frequently uh, exceeded expectations on the, so the stock had performed really well over an extended period of time. I followed this stock from that point and it basically fell off a cliff. Like, yep. <laughs> that was the end of the good times for <laughs> GE. And get, anyone giving an investment hypothesis like it's as good as cash clearly did not know what they're talking about. So that's fun. We we uh, talked about Jeff Bezos going out on top, right? Yeah. Jack Welch. That was like the... <laughs> It was more went out on top for Jack Welch. Oh, <laughs> only for like, only for yeah, him. Only for Jack Welch, which is pretty much, I think, what he mostly cared about. I don't want to talk ill on the on the dead, but uh, but it he exited that business, and the business was not in good shape, but the stock was in great shape. Yes, right. Yeah. It was a, it was a little bit of a house of cards. I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was just built on financial house of cards. Um, so yep. anyway, but if you want to know more about that, read Hot Seat. All right, fishbowl diving. Can I can I dive well, in? Oh, hold on. I have some about. some roundabout listener mail. I had multiple people. Um, I'll, I think I'll give you in a dollar figure sense. I, I think we made our listeners that I'm aware of. I'm sure it's much more than this because it's not like every listener is reaching out. But I think we made at least 10K in uh, risk-free interest with the Treasury Direct I-bonds recommendation. So I know we had a lot of people take us up on that. Uh, after doing their own research, of course. And uh, that makes me really happy. That's nice. And you know what What makes it even nicer? Uh, milk? <laughs> From Starbucks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Potentially. Uh, is this. <laughs> so inflation is what's making that a like a hot ticket item right now, right? And yeah. we very well might be set up in a situation here where, and this is, that you're going to read lots of stuff around this this first point. This is probably not transitory, but why? I've read two pieces on why this might not be transitory that I think are, are pretty interesting. Um, so we've discussed on here a bunch around what's been happening around supply. We've talked about the cargo ships, you know, stuck off Long Beach. We talked about all kinds of things. Yeah. But I read two pieces that are saying this is a demand shock mostly not a supply shock and they're there it's pretty fascinating so the two pieces that i'm going to talk about one is from bridgewater associates and it's called it's mostly a demand shock not a supply shock and it's everywhere and then the second piece was from the atlantic and it's called stop shopping uh, by amanda mall so i'm gonna most of what i'm going to talk about is from the bridgewater piece but i'm going to weave in amanda it was like a really like entertaining piece and like well thought out and so i'm going to weave some of that in as well can, can I just rant on one thing before we get started? Yeah, always. It, it drives me crazy that this whole transitory definition, why can't the Fed use uh, more basic words that your people who don't like finance might be into? Why couldn't it, like, I think it was Powell that said transitory initially. Like, why didn't you just say temporary. current inflation is short term? Yeah, yeah, or temporary. Or like, yeah. you know, I, I feel like there's these codings, and I'm not saying like transitory, transitory is an impossible word to understand or something but it i don't know why people don't use more simple language to talk about things that really impact your average american citizen and like 
their finances because I think you do though. I think you know why. Uh, to charge bigger fees? Why? I mean, well, partially. I think it's because if you use a, if you use words that other people can easily associate with their everyday life, then you have less control over the narrative. Whereas if you say something like transitory, you can define what that is. If you say something like short-lived, short-lived actually might mean something to somebody. Like they yeah. might say that's one month, like next month it'll be better. Whereas transitory might be, oh, it's during this cycle. When I say transitory, I mean during this cycle. Yeah, and, I can and define then they define the, the length is. of the cycle and yeah. Exactly. I think that's why it, it like it's it actually frustrating though. It's meaningless. It's made yeah, but it's made this uh topic that now is frequently talked about because CPI was six percent or whatever, and you know, like it, it's made it murkier than it needs to be, I think. Yeah. But yeah, you're probably right by design. Anyway, go ahead. So Bridgewater, the way that they start off is set by saying, Well, why are we where we are? And um simply put, there's monetary policy and fiscal policy. Right, that that exists. So monetary policy is the stuff that the Fed does um, in the U.S. It would be the Fed, so central bank generally, but in the U.S., the stuff the Fed does. So that's like interest rates, money supply. Then there's fiscal policy, which is the stuff the government does. That's like taxes, stimulus checks, you know, all that. So th those are two ways in which you can impact the money that people have in their pockets. Yep. And recently, what Bridgewater is saying is it's the combo of those two things coming together in a very powerful way that's created a lot of excess demand without increasing supply to the same degree. But at the same time, what they're saying is that we're talking about how supply is, is too low, but supply is actually at all time highs. When, you, when you're defining supply as basically US consumer goods that are available, supply is at an all time high. It's just that demand is so out of whack. Uh, and so demand right now is roughly from the numbers they showed, like 20% outpacing supply. And that is the crux of what's happening. That's like the core thesis. Make, does it make sense? Any questions, thoughts? No, that makes sense. I can buy that. Cool. So what they're, they're saying that that difference that we see right now is actually very similar to the difference that we saw in the 1970s. We've talked about inflation in the 1970s, people rioting, picketing in the streets because of inflation. Yeah. But the difference was that in the 1970s, there was a huge supply collapse. Like it was a supply collapse, right? You had OPEC and whatnot. So supply collapse, demand basically stayed the same. And that's what happened in the 1970s. Now we have outpaced demand. And the things that they started going into is interesting looking at all the, the charts that they were showing. But they, they said, we have not enough raw materials for demand, not enough energy for demand, not enough productive capacity for demand, mm -hmm. not enough inventory or shipping capacity, not enough housing, not enough labor, right? All of this. And labor in particular, a couple stats, half of all firms in the US are unable to fill their positions. Yep. It's far higher than anything we've seen since the 70s. Uh, and there are, as everyone knows, there are more job openings than there are unemployed people, right? Um, and mm -hmm. But the uh, I went through all those points because the crux of this, it's kind of like what's expensive in the US right now when we talk about investments. What they're saying is it's everything. Like the problem is that it's everywhere. You can't, like whack-a-mole the situation because it is raw materials, energy, productive capacity, inventory, yeah. right? It's like, it's everything is part of the problem. Well, this, uh, I mean, to interject, this reminds me of Seth, Seth Klarman and Drunken Miller last week talking about how everything might be a bubble because we typically determine if something 
is a bubble or not, we almost tie it to bonds. And so if bonds are in a bubble and then everything else is tied to that bubble, then everything gets to a bubble. And it just reminds me of this uh, situation. It, I love your definition that you always talk about when we talk about inflation, which is too many dollars chasing too few goods. Like, there's just too many dollars out there, and it's chasing everything, right? Yeah, exactly. And all the pressures are um, creating these wage hikes too, which I think is, which I think is really it's great for like the the average worker, right? That is a uh, in the U.S., it's great to be getting wage hikes, and it's gonna that that exacerbates part of the issue. The wage hikes yeah. also are not outpacing inflation, as we see it right now. So we'll see how that changes. But, but yeah, I mean, wages are increasing at the fastest rate for about forty years, um, which I think all in all is like fantastic. I I like the the worker having leverage, like broadly speaking, I enjoy that. But now let me can I let me tie in a couple things. Before, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Let me tie in a couple <laughs> things um, from from the Atlantic article because I think that uh, what Amanda Mall does in this article is, and it's called "Stop Shopping Again." Is she okay. just she like brings it the opposite of what the Fed does when they talk? She just like brings it to everyday life, and I think it's like it's really helpful. Okay. So uh, one of the things she says is, "What news stories generally don't show you is where all this stuff is going." At least anecdotally, much of it seems to be headed directly into the overflowing package room in my apartment building, right? And what, what, what she's saying, uh, the purpose of this article is she's saying that we can stop buying stuff. Like it, it is possible actually to, uh, for us to help in this situation because we can stop, stop buying stuff. But specifically, she's saying it's not, she doesn't mean like everyone just stop the economy. That, that's not what it is. She separates things into, and this is a very humorous definition that I love. She separates things into necessary spending, which is like rent, gas, groceries, mm -hmm. and then discretionary spending, which she says is whatever you ordered from Instagram after three glasses of happy hour wine. <laughs> and she's saying it's that like second, that second category that we can slow down. And even more specifically, it's that second category for the more affluent part of the country. Because, and I don't have the numbers to like say how, how much of an issue this point is, but I think conceptually it makes sense. She says that if the distributor of $100 throw pillows can pay more for access to a trucking capacity than a local food distributor that serves schools can, then the pillows are going on the truck. And where I combine the Bridgewater Associates piece with this piece is basically Bridgewater saying there's so much demand, supply and capacity can't keep up. And then what Amanda's saying is that specifically when you have decreased or lower capacity, you have to choose. If it's scarce, it's going to go one way or another. And if the more affluent person's buying the more expensive goods, which leads to more profit, then what's going to go on the truck is the more expensive good. And then it's, yeah. it's those folks that need what's in that necessary spending versus the Instagram wine-fueled purchase yeah. that are going to get hurt. Uh, you did such a good job explaining that, and then you brought like children into the equation, so I can't show throw all my jokes your way. <laughs> See what I did? There, there's something to this, though. I, I really like the way our Amanda articulates that, and she clearly listens to the show because my this was my $14 burrito rant from last week. It's interesting how mindset changes when you think inflation is not transitory, <laughs> right? When you think it's here to stay, which I know 
is creeping into my brain and I know it's creeping into my colleague's brain because people are talking about this now um, and they're talking about it frequently. And it's a meaningful change in um, the expense of what feels like goods that you purchase almost every day. So my mindset becomes when I'm trying to think of a good example here, but when you go out to make uh, a regular everyday purchase that borders on that Instagram three three glass of wine thing, whether it's a fancier dinner or you know something you don't really need from the local consumer goods store, and it's way more expensive than you think it's worth or remember it being or whatever. I think the human psyche, at least mine, is like, I'm just not buying that anymore. Like, it's not something I needed in the first place. And now when it feels really, really expensive, I'm going to pull back from those purchases. And I think a lot of people are. And so what I'm interested in now is the next reverberation of people changing their spending habits based on the supply and demand equation of feeling like, oh, you know, I like this, whatever. I like my coffee and pastry in the morning, but I'm not paying $11 for it. So I'm not doing that anymore. I'm having my coffee from home and then how that, that rebound happens. And if there's, I think there's a potential, especially if the stock market bubble ever corrects for like there to be a, a shock in the other direction pretty quickly where people go, Oh, all of a sudden money doesn't feel free and everything feels really expensive. And uh, consumer spending just grinds to a halt. I, I I love I love what you just said there, and I'll add in the there was a point where we were talking about how businesses like think about what the what demand cycles are going to look like, and when they choose to invest and when they choose not to invest. And one thing I think is is particularly interesting in what in like the I don't know the dimensions that you just threw out are that businesses have to think about where they're spending their production capacity how much capacity they're creating, right? What the next, what the future is going to hold. And it ends up being this game of like, of cat and mouse, chicken, egg, horse cart. I don't know which one uh, it is, but basically where you have to say, so now our business is going, okay, let's look at all the increased demand. We have to increase supply aggressively. Then to your point, people go, whoa, stuff's way too expensive. So we're pulling back demand, but you can't just increase capacity overnight, right? For very few things, can you do that? And so you might have to invest for, like put a lot of capex in for something that might pay off in one, five, ten years. So, yeah. so then, what happens to that business cycle? I think it's a we're we're playing a very, very dangerous game right now, um, and we'll see. But there's a, another part of that equation that makes it even more complex. I don't know. I, I haven't looked this week at the number of ships sitting outside of Long Beach Harbor. You know, um, but there's still this. <laughs> hold, hold on, sorry. Before we go on. Uh, go back to like 2019 Skippy and take that phrase. It, do you ever think of yourself being, well, this week I didn't look at the number of ships. Like who looks at that on a weekly basis? I, Sorry. I should have. Yeah, it's crazy times, right? That, yeah. That's a that's something that um, a reasonable person could do every week in, in this. But you you were just talking about the business manufacturer trying to figure out what their capacity needs to be. Who knows how much of their product is currently in the supply chain, but not on the shelves right now. I mean, they would know that, but I don't know that. So that's a whole other thing is like, in a lot of cases, it's not necessarily more manufacturing that's needed to untangle that supply chain piece. Um, It's just really crazy times. And I mean, I'll hammer on the point you mentioned and the the point I was kind of talking about initially more. 
the thing that I think happens to people is they literally extrapolate whatever's happening now without understanding that there's a constant supply demand equation going on in everyone's brain about every purchase they make. Well, not everyone's brain about every purchase they make, but in a large majority of purchase decisions, right? And people will correct. And I expect that to be the next thing that happens. I don't know if that happens in three months or six months or more, but prices aren't going to continue at climbing at this rate forever because they simply can't. No one has the means to to just keep buying the things that they see on Instagram. Yeah. Okay, can, let's go into a segment that may not make it past this episode, but the let's talk that tweet segment. Oh, yes. My favorite segment. I've never heard of it before, though, Diggles. <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> Do you want me to start or you want to start? Uh, go ahead. All right. So I saw a tweet from, by at plantmath1. That I'm not even sure what stock or asset or whatever they were talking about, but the tweet was, how do you define low risk? They don't even have a product, is that tweet. The response to this tweet is like one of the epitome of the bubble responses. Okay. So here's a response. At $58, and it doesn't even have a product yet? Wait till you see where the price goes after they have a product. <laughs> I still don't know that I understand this game, but I like it. Is that uh, Rivian? Ryavan? I never know how to say it. Rivian? No, I don't know. I, I literally don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I was just, I read, you really I just, don't know. No, I just read this and I was just like, <laughs> what kind of response is that? Yeah, if it's $58 before product, picture after they have a product. Like they take, take that for, for like a, if you're investing in a business, which is what buying a stock is, but let's take it yes. like off the stock market. Yeah. And you're looking at a company's balance sheet and you're like, oh, wow, they have a billion dollars in debt, $1 in cash and no product. And I go, yeah, Skippy. But imagine after they pay off that debt. <laughs> you know, like, well, what kind of logic is this? All right. What's this game called? Because I have a tweet for us. Talk that tweet. Talk that tweet. All right. Talk that tweet. There will only ever be 21 million EV companies which is why each and every one is so valuable <laughs> bitcoin humor <laughs> i love this i mean i just love this this is uh dan mcmurtry uh on twitter and he's referring to rivian being one of the largest ipos ever being worth more than lots of well-established car companies they haven't like even 95 billion or something right zero something. revenue like zero revenue so you got me thinking and yes he's making a bitcoin joke there but i just think it's so funny because as we talked about last week in tesla versus the world the valuations don't make sense there's no way you can argue that they make sense for electric vehicle companies but people like the idea of it so top we don't we don't have valuations right now what we have is stock prices times number of shares. Like that, that, that is what we have. <laughs> yes, we do. All right. Talk that tweet. What's next? Oh, I had one tweet. <laughs> I did it wasn't called talk talk dem tweets. It was talk <laughs> that tweet, you see. Uh talk dem tweets. Uh <laughs> James Osborne, financial manager in Colorado, who I like. He's a fixed fee guy. He said after all these years, it's still crazy to me to think that 
right now I'd be charging clients at least 20% more than a year ago simply because the markets are up. Asset-based fees are so backwards. That's a debatable point. I've heard the pros for asset-based fees, but I love that tweet because it makes you think, you know, like if you're in a financial advisor relationship with someone charging 1% of total assets and I'm not sure what they did for you in the last year, but they are probably charging you 20% more than they charged you previously. And I hope you think you got value from that. Yeah. It's the, it's the ultimate cost pass through. Yeah. I mean, it, right. Like we, we talk about how uh, how we sorry like it is talked about how many companies that have uh, that have the power here would be able to to take inflationary costs that they're seeing and pass them on to their customers, right? Yep. But this is it like it's an automatic way to do that. Um, you can decide whether or not that's for you, right? As a as the consumer of these services, but I love that point. It's not all bad, but just make sure you're thinking about it if you're in one of those uh, situations. Yep. Because the other thing that drives me crazy is it's not always transparent. So some people don't realize that they might be getting charged 20% more this year. All right. Do you have a, what's your fistful situation? This GMO insights graph, it talks about basically the number of years to get back to earning a 6% real return after a drop. And so like we talk about Japan and the equity bubble and everything else. And Japan's the first one I'd call out. So uh, Japan uh, started, the crash started in 1989, and it took 32 years to get back to earning a 6% real return. The U.S. in 1929, the crash took 30 years to get back to earning a 6% real return. Uh, The U.S. in 1966, which isn't frequently talked about one, took 32 years. U.S. in 1907 to 22, and the crash that happened in 2000, we actually still haven't got back there, which is crazy when you think about how hot the market has been for effectively the last decade. Uh, we're almost there, so that we're, you know, 21 years out, and we still aren't back. It's just an interesting thing to ponder, really, because I read another thing this week that specifically talked about the counterintuitive nature of retiring at the height of a bubble and how that's actually a bad thing and how it might in a way change um, some standard rules about how much money you can pull out of your retirement account because you can't expect the average uh, return rates going forward because you're at the very top of the peak. So you're going to get below average returns, which means you could probably have to take below average distributions Um it's it's complex. I won't go into all the details here, but um, if there's interest, I can put that out on the Twitter. Just something that had me yeah. thinking this week. Yeah, what, what it says for me is it's okay. You can even say like, it's good to make sure you're in the market and investing at the top of a bubble is like fine. I go back to Ben Carlson, I think, put something out a few months ago about, it was like, a, like an animation. Yeah. But it was just showing like, whatever this made up character bob and like bob invested in like 1973 before everything crashed then bob was like oh i'm not gonna invest again for a bit right but the thing was that bob kept investing and so i'd say like it's okay if you put your money in at the top but what this says it's not okay if you only put your money in at the top basically right and so if you invest right now and you get burned and you go okay the stock market's not for me then it's gonna it, it could potentially take a while 
for you to get to for that money to to create anything for you. But if you continue to invest and stay involved and stay participatory, then the numbers that are in that chart look a little bit different. This is why what happens with the stock market in people's really it's their 20s and 30s is so formative to their opinion of the stock market. Because if you get caught in one of these 20 to 30 year cycles uh, where basically you feel like it takes 30 years to get back to square one. In this case, it's not square one because it's a 6% real return, but like the expected return, then that can wound you for life in terms of your approach to the stock market. Uh, and that, Dougals, that goes to the retirement point too. The thing about someone that's like truly retiring is that's they stop putting money into the stock market. So if you stop putting money into the stock market at its absolute peak, it creates some challenges for you uh, going forward. All right, I have one more thing in the fishbowl. And this hits on uh, some psychology, right? That we we touch on a good amount. Um, I like to hit on psychology because one, I find it interesting, but two, uh, I believe, and I, I'm, I'm gonna state it for myself, but I think you're in a similar camp that psychology is one of, if not the most important element of, yeah. of good investing. There is this piece called The Attention Span, Racehorses and Psychopaths, written by uh, the KCP group. And the core thesis of this piece, uh, it's a long piece, but I recommend it. But the core thesis is confirmation bias is ruining the world. That's my language, not their language. But the reason for that is because basically you can get into a world where you say every piece of information, and this is also defining confirmation bias, every piece of information that I'm going to gather I'm going to use to support my previously held belief. And if we do that, we end up splitting up into factions, self-reinforcing factions that creates an us versus them like mentality in the world. That's, that's the core like theme of what this piece is about. Uh, one of the anecdotes that they use in here, uh, which I think we've, we've seen a few times before, but I think is super powerful. It's one that Michael Mobison um, brings up a whole bunch too, is this racehorse anecdote. Yeah. Um, like racehorse gamblers. Uh, and so what they say is there was this study where they first asked uh, the folks that were betting to make race predictions with five pieces of information. Then they asked them to make predictions with 10, 20, and yep. 40 pieces of information. Yep. And the outcome was that they didn't get, their picks didn't get more accurate, but they got a lot more confident in those picks. And so you can easily see this happening in the investment world, right? If I decide that if I decide that the story I'm going to tell myself about NVIDIA is that NVIDIA is great because of their GPU prowess and GPUs are taking over the world, right? Then anything that I see that has to do with graphic, graphic processing units, sorry, anything that I see that says that there are other, other factors that actually make a stronger company, I'm just going to probably not believe. And everything that I see that says that GPUs are taking over the world because the metaverse is, and then I go, oh yeah, well that obviously that's real, right? And you have the self-enforcing piece or self-reinforcing prophecy basically that says, I'm just gonna keep investing in this thing because I keep telling myself and confirming my own bias. So I'll pause there, thoughts. Uh, this is, uh, you're right. Uh, Michael Mobison talked about this a lot, but this is a pretty famous um, study. And there's, there's lots of other things that are have very similar outcomes. Um, there's Joel Greenblatt one where he basically used the magic formula to give subscribers 
the ability to pick stocks. So he'd basically do the screen and he'd say, these are the stocks you should buy. And then they had two options. One was you buy whatever the screen tells you to buy. The other is you do your own research and you buy a subset of what's available to buy. And the people that actually did their own research and thought they picked the true winners of that group significantly underperformed the people that basically bought the whole screen, right? Because sometimes the ugliest aspects or <laughs> the simplest conclusions are the things that actually lead to the winning horse rather than you do all this deep research. And anyway, this has been in roundabout ways replicated a bunch and there's a lesson there, but I think the lesson is really tough to articulate because you never want to go. It, you have to find the sweet spot between finding enough information that it's a low risk play, but not too much information that you get overconfident and not too little information that you're just buying stuff because you saw it pop up on Twitter, right? You know, there's this really hard sweet spot to find. But I think the important takeaway is to understand that more information isn't always better, right? It, it, the, I think the human brain, mind falls into that fallacy a lot. You hit on it perfectly. One of what one of the things this piece talks about in relation to that is that you can get caught into abstraction is the way that they frame it. So that's like looking at the big picture. I think that the way mm -hmm. they, they put it in looking at the map, you abstract yourself so you can see the map, but it's important that you connect the map also to what's tangible and real. And it's the combination of getting those two things right that's important. What hits exactly on what you said, and this is a quote from there, they say, perhaps the simplest and best definition of wisdom I've heard is knowing what information is important. And that, that's it. It's exactly right. I think this is a, it's well worth it. There's a lot more. It's a, it's a long read. There's a lot more that's in it. I just hit on some of the, the key points, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's great to understand psychology in that way. And specifically around confirmation bias, it's very important to know when you might be being uh, susceptible to confirmation bias and to the point that Skippy brought up, knowing when information is important, not just more information, but especially not just more information that you're using to confirm your previous beliefs. So I think that hits on it. Yeah. So then there's Arnold Vanderberg, who's uh, uh, the star of William Green's book, Richer, Wiser, right. Happier, makes an appearance at the end. And there's even a a reference to a podcast. I don't think with him, but that talks about some of these issues. So this looks great. I'll throw it on the Twitter right now. Um, I didn't get a chance to dive in and do a deep dive, but I'm going to because I'm I'm really impressed with uh, how they wrote this. And uh, Arnold's a superstar, so I'd love to hear more That's about that. Stuff. You know, one thing I didn't think about earlier, but now that you brought up Joel Greenblatt, is we were talking about uh, the the companies that are splitting. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how or if Joel Greenblatt is diving into that because he's he's written about um, spinoffs and being able to find potential arbitrage opportunities in there. I just, I'm curious as to whether or not he sees opportunity in, in these ones. We might not have enough information yet, but. Yeah, I don't think we do, but um, spinoffs are really fun. These will be fun to watch. I, my initial take is they might all be too large and too high profile to have like absolutely insane mispricings, but there probably is um, something that gets misvalued. When you talk about three companies spit, splitting multiple ways there's there's probably a mispricing in there all right anything else on your side no i think that's it so uh thanks for listening guys please uh please review us on apple podcasts if you haven't that helps more people hear the show you can hit us up on twitter 
at Skippy Dougals um, on Substack, Skippy and Dougals.substack.com and listener mail, Skippy Dougals at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Did it. Thanks, guys. <laughs>